We are the children, the children of Zion. We have been left here to defend humanity's right to exist. No matter what the machines believe, we belong here, at this place, at this time. And with that, I present this revolutionary love letter to those who came before. Let's go. They call me Speed Rider, but never no heat hider. But I'm digital, fighting wars no one's hit to. Matrix division that we're system point two. Called the one, the Neo, the novice, the noose. Where Trinity will execute. Between the viral agents flagrant and gauge. Spoilers, people. It is now. We're going to get our pride on. And we're going to get some interviewing done. And I'm going crazy because of COVID-19, even though I don't have it. My name is Bill, and we have a special guest co-host today. Uh, Renee, one of our previous guests, is coming in to uh, take place for Noelle for now. She, Noelle might come in a little bit later, but we want to get things started. Uh, Renee? I, I am an emergency holographic Noelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, she is Noelle Light. Renee, in the rage. Renee is a proposal management specialist at a Fortune 500 tech company, which goes back into STEM. And she is also an author of role-playing games industry for both tabletop and LARP systems. So she understands the insanity many of us go through. Yes, yes, I do. Quick plug. I decided don't get rid of the long-form plugging of everything because you guys don't really need to listen to it. But I will say... Everything you want to know about the us is found on our website, xchromosomepodcast.com. That's xchromosomepodcast.com. And if you want to write us, you can write us at write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. I mentioned this at the end of the last podcast with Noel. Uh, we do have a guest. Um, the, our guest is Kit Chapman. Um, Kit's a friend of mine and Renee's and Noel's. Um, but that's why I asked Renee on as the guest host today because she knows kit and she likes kit and we want to make everybody a little bit comfortable when we're talking about these hot topics of things such as science and uh, lbgtq issues and various things like that uh, kit is a science journalist and the author of super heavy making and breaking of the periodic table um, he's currently pursuing his phd in history and philosophy of science at the university of sutherland in the United Kingdom. Now, he's it's 1 a.m. in the United Kingdom, and he's on with us today. So, Kit, welcome to the pod. Uh, good morning. Good good night. I'm not entirely sure what it counts as, but hello anyway. <laughs> um, I want to put Renee on the spot. Renee, have you read his book? Not yet, but it is, in fact, on my Kindle. I just got it earlier today. You can find it on Amazon. We'll be providing the link in the show notes. Yeah, I picked up the book because I wanted to... Um, I have to take, I had to take a couple of lower level science courses, which I hated, um, because of how it was presented. And I was like, look, if you want, I'm a type of person that if you want them to learn about science or anything like that, you need to use it like this. And I had went through and I read his book to basically say, I want to know stories about the science. That's what's going to get me interested in science. And if that interest isn't there, that spark isn't there, you don't want to learn. So, Kit, you travel and you teach, you lecture on science and 
science communication and science journalism. What's your thought in regards to making people want to learn science? I think you're absolutely right. I think the story is the key part. One of the things I talk about, uh, because I'm predominantly a chemistry journalist, is the problem with chemistry science communication is usually, you know, you pour two substances together, it froths up and or goes boom, something like that. It grabs your attention. It doesn't stay there. Um, astrophysics and um, and certain communicators are fantastic at telling stories about where we come from. Biologists are fantastic about relating animals to ourselves and explaining how those go. If you look at a David Attenborough documentary, for example, he's wonderful at relating the animal to the humans. That's what you need. You need that connection. Um, and chemistry has some amazing stories. So I am all for storytelling in science. What would you say would be a good story about chemistry? Ooh, what, what kind of story would you, would you want someone dying? Do you want something discovered? Do you want something interesting, something scary? What do you, what do you fancy? Renee, I'll let you choose the subject matter. I think Kit might already know which story I want him to tell. <laughs> you do. Um, I'll come to that one later. Um, tell what, how about I tell you a, a story about a, an LGBT chemist who died about 400 years ago in a hilarious manner? Do it. So this is Francis Bacon. Um, you've probably heard of Francis Bacon. Uh, there's a painter called Francis Bacon as well. This was a guy who was a member of the Elizabethan court in, in London. And uh, he was a fantastic uh, scientist. And he thought about why we do science. He was one of the first people to think that because you can't see something happening doesn't mean it isn't happening. And that's, of course, very important for things like gravity. Um, so all of these ideas initially came from, from Bacon, this idea of empiricism being beyond what you can just see and witness. And it he also wanted to experiment. To <laughs> Absolutely does. Uh, he, uh, he was predominantly gay. Um, he, he may have been bisexual, but certainly he was gay. And um, in, uh, I think it was 1625, um, 1626, something around then, he was riding in his carriage through London. It was snowy. It was a very, very cold day. He got interested in refrigeration and he thought, what happens if I put snow in a chicken? Would its body live longer? So immediately he ordered the coach to pull over. He got out, went and bought a chicken. Uh, they killed the chicken there and then for him. He got out and he started shoveling snow up the chicken's anus. <laughs> while he did this, he got pneumonia and died. Um, so he died stuffing snow up a chicken's backside. Thing is, Highgate supposedly to this day is haunted by a shivering chicken, which everyone attributes to the story of Francis Bacon. So there you go, a little bit of a spooky story, a little bit of a science story, um, but you'll never look at a chicken another way again. We're going to get back to uh, Sir Francis Bacon a bit, because that's going to be a part of a larger part that we want to talk to you about. Um, wow. Um, and he didn't get time to write his peer-reviewed paper about refrigeration did he he didn't get a time to write anything at all so the, he just you know all of this was lost to science um should i go to the story that renee was referencing sure this is going to make your blood boil but it's the story of a woman called darlene hoffman uh, darlene is still with us at time of speaking she's 93 years old and she suffered the most outrageous outrageous sexism you could possibly experience throughout science um when she wanted to switch into chemistry she was told do you really think that's an appropriate job for a woman she said, I, yes, I think it is, um, and sat through classes where it was just predominantly guys. She uh, got, got to university at uh, what is now Iowa State, and um, she was forced to take a... T her husband, her uh, father died, and uh, 
um, she was going to try and arrange the funeral. She asked if she could move her test date. The teacher made her do the test on the spot. She's still got a B plus. She graduates and she starts getting a reputation in nuclear chemistry. And she gets a position at a place called Los Alamos, which is a huge uh, facility out uh, in um, in New Mexico. And she arrives there, and human resources say there must be some mistake. Chemistry don't hire women. Lost. They literally kick her out of the base. She tries every day for about two weeks to get into the base, repeatedly told, there is no way you could be a chemist, you're a woman. Don't be stupid. Oh, what the fuck? Eventually, she finds her supervisor. Her supervisor gets it all straightened out at a cocktail party, I think it is. Um, and her supervisor straightens it all out and says, look, there is obviously a mistake. Then her clearance mysteriously goes missing. Someone removes her clearance. Eileen Hoffman then calls in the FBI to get her into the base. All of this takes place over about three months. She is literally raging against the system, as she called it, uh, in a building just a couple of meters away from, from this place. While she was waiting for her clearance to come through, her team, the team that she would have led, discover two new chemical elements. She misses out on one of the greatest discoveries a scientist could possibly have purely out of sexism. What? The, that fucking sucks. Oh, oh. <laughs> Said, I, I told Renee that uh, just when you think the story ends, it gets even worse. Colleen continues her career. In 1970s, she starts to look for plutonium on Earth. Plutonium doesn't naturally exist on Earth in, in any large quantities. And because it's too radioactive, it breaks apart. Right. Plutonium-244 has a half-life that's really long, several million years. And she thought, okay, there must be a fragment of it somewhere on Earth. She gets this sample of rock. She does the analysis. She sends it over to... Um, uh, General Electric, because they have the best detection systems. Sure enough, there's a tiny amount of plutonium from when the solar system formed found on Earth. It's the rarest possible discovery you could make. It's, it's astonishing what she did. Right. The next 30 years, men have written papers saying there's no way she could have found it. Don't be stupid. It didn't happen. We're not quite done there either. Because she then moves to Berkeley. And in 1999... She is running an element discovery team, and sure enough, the computer pings and says, we've discovered element 118. Uh, suddenly, Darlene Hoffman has her element. Suddenly, she doesn't, because it turns out a guy actually hacked the computer and faked the discovery. So she is denied three element discoveries, and her one discovery has constantly been under attack since it was made in the 1970s. This is the life of Darlene Hoffman. Um, despite that, she has been a fantastic advocate for women in science. She has constantly uh, gone above and beyond to try and, and make sure that they're welcome. If a woman can't get a position on a group, she would invite them into her group. And all the while she's doing this, every time she walks into a machine shop, uh, there would be play Playboy pinups on the walls. Occasionally, people would change the desktop um, of the computer to try and intimidate her, you know, put nudie pics, things like that. She was often referred to as a sweet little lady. So unbelievable sexism, but uh, a real champion for women in science. Wow, what the fuck? Yeah, um, sexism specifically in various forms of STEM is prevalent even today. Um, it is nowhere near as bad as it has been, but just looking at enrollment programs and how many women specifically quit uh education programs or careers specifically in STEM because of how they are treated is astronomical. Um, Absolutely. We have, yeah. We have massive dropouts. Yeah. But at least now it is not to the point where we're literally getting kicked out of where we're working on the first day because there's absolutely no way in hell that we could have been hired. Um, so 
baby steps, I guess. Um, as a matter of fact, Kit wrote an awesome article about um, unconscious bias specifically within the context of STEM. Wrote this back in 2017. Yeah, like three years. Like something be, like that, yeah. Yeah, it'll be three years to the day, actually. Yeah, in the chemistry week. world, right? Yep. Yeah, that, I was looking over that article the uh, that he wrote. We'll be putting the link up in the show notes to go through and ping that about it's it's a good article that he co-wrote with uh, Manisha uh, Manisha Lalu. She uh, contributed a little bit um, to the end of the article. Yeah, gotcha. I wanted to make sure that we gave all credit where credit was due. Um, if you're sharing a byline, we're going to have everybody on the byline. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's one of those things where go, we went through in. Um, we went through in March and we did a lot. We did a subject about women historically in STEM, um, both women, just regular women and LGBTQA women. Uh, we primarily pointed out with um, minorities histor historically in STEM because um, our podcast was basically canceled for February. So we couldn't really do much for Black History Month. Uh, um, but the history behind women in the STEM field is um is amazing if when you go through and start digging into what they contributed. But um one of the things that Kit had told me about was he was not not only does he go through and post stories about um LGBTQA in history and STEM, you're you're working on a project for Wiki, to for to update Wikipedia for this type of yeah. issue. So um, a friend of mine, um, uh, Jess Wade, um, she's uh, she's really leading the project, mm -hmm. and she noticed that there is a significant bias towards men having biographies in Wikipedia. Um, it's something like only eighteen percent of biographies are of women in, in Wikipedia. That that might be incorrect. Something like that. And she wanted to address that, so she would go through and she would do a fully researched article um, about a relevant, uh, important scientist who should be in Wikipedia. Create those bios. What she found was that uh, anonymous users would go through and highlight them for deletion almost immediately. And this isn't relevant. We shouldn't have these here. Um, it was just a, a systemic problem. I'll give you one example um, about an ongoing saga that uh, finally did get resolved. Um, Clarice Phelps. Uh, Clarice Phelps uh, works at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. Um, she's a Navy veteran, and she went through the Navy nuclear program. And she was part of the team that discovered element 117, which is Tennessee. The most recent element discovered in 2010. She actually took the uh, the berkelium from the from you got to make berkelium in a, a nuclear reactor. Took it from the nuclear reactor and purified it. Incredibly complicated thing to do. But then that could be combined with calcium to make this tennessine. And she is the first African American woman to discover an element. Um, I don't know if she's the first Black woman to discover an element um, because there are several elements we have no idea who discovered them. Right. For example, we don't know. Antimony, we don't know. Gold, we don't know. I'll tell you one thing, almost certainly wasn't a white guy. Anyway, um, and Clarice uh, rightly had a Wikipedia article created, fully referenced, fully detailed. It was deleted uh, twice and once marked as it should never be re returned to Wikipedia. Um, it was an absolute scandal and it finally did get resolved and the page was finally created and there it remains. But the fact that she had to have... 30 or 40 references, all fact-checked. Whereas there's a page of a guy who once played five minutes for England in cricket in 1878 or something like that. 
five minutes and it has one reference and that page has never been touched. I mean, that tells you a lot. I just went through and actually, uh, while you were talking, pulled up Jess Wade Wikipedia article. Um, and it actually talks about that situation briefly. Um, I just put the direct link to that subsection of that. Um, but it, it, she's, she's fantastic. I mean, um, if people are more interested in getting involved in Wikipedia, there is mm-hmm. a Wikipedia project called Women in Red. Obviously, when you've got a red link, it means that a link doesn't exist. Um, currently, uh, in October 2014, when they started, only 15.53% of English Wikipedia biographies were about women. Um, as of uh, the 2nd of June uh, this year, it was 18.46%. But that is still a massive gender gap. So quick quick question, more of a clarification. Is that just biographies in general or biographies of figures uh, specifically in the sciences? It's biographies in general. All biographies Jesus. on Wikipedia, only 18.46 of them are of women. That should terrify you folks. I say, if you want to get involved, um, if you Google Wiki Project Women in Red, you can very easily find it and you can get all the information you need about how to create good quality articles that will stay on Wikipedia. I just added the link to our show notes so we could add that to everybody's show notes. So they'll be available when you listen to the podcast to, if for a quick search. So you, you have to Google it. Um, but yeah, when, I remember you talking to me about this project uh, a while back because you were going to get really invested in it with, when you were looking for a grant or something like that. Um, um, while we were yeah, so I was I was looking at potentially uh, going into a a grant to do sort of more more journalism into this particular area um, because I think it is something that needs to be addressed. Um, as it was, the grant didn't come through, and and I started looking at other projects as well and, and other issues. But um, it's uh, Jess is really the person to who who leads this kind of thing, and she's absolutely a star. Um, she actually got the uh, the British Empire Medal um, for her work in doing this, and rightly so. The British Empire Medal for those that. Um, don't know uh, medals. Do you have um, an equivalency uh, to that? To like maybe some other medal? Um, so it, it's it's uh, it, every year in the UK uh, there are two periods where where medals are awarded. It's the New Year's honors and the Queen's birthday honors. Mm-hmm. The highest, obviously, is something like uh, you becoming a Knight of the Garter. Um, but that's when we make uh, that's when we make new knights, basically. Right. And the British Empire Medal is. Um, Established in uh, about a hundred years ago, and it's for meritorious service um, that is worthy of recognition by the crown. Um, so, in terms of, uh, of of honors, it's not particularly high in terms of them, but still, you're getting an honor, <laughs> um, and I think that, that has to be recognised. Um, yeah, it's higher than being mentioned in dispatches, for example. Right. Um, but it's not quite uh, sort of you know a distinguished cross or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah. There's. There are usually, I believe there are actually American equivalents, like specifically presidential awards. However, we probably haven't seen very many of those dispersed specifically with the current administration. (laughs) Sorry, I really don't know the American award system. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally fine. We can research it at another another time. But like I said, um, there's not really going to, there probably haven't been a whole lot of awards or recognition specifically around scientific research coming from the current administration's office and to be fair to be quite fair when it comes down to civilian awards most people even myself don't really know them so i actually i accidentally put kit on the spot right there even though 
I don't even know a lot of the civilian award type things that go out like that. So. The thing is that there's, there's actually quite a lot of awards that are given to scientists that the administration has no real say in. They probably aren't aware of them. And, um, and a lot of them sort of linger on as well. So, for example, there's a, a fantastic LGBT scientist called Carolyn Batozzi. Um, she's at Stanford um, in San Francisco. And she was given a, um, a MacArthur Genius Grant basically means you've got free reign to start looking at what you really want to look at. Right. She was given that quite a while ago. I've heard of that. And, um, and so these things sort of uh, do linger, and, and she still gets funding through that. She created a whole new field of chemistry, something called bioorthogonal chemistry, which sounds really fancy. What it actually means is a way of doing chemical reactions in your body that doesn't interfere with your body. So it's, it's a fantastic and really important field for medicine, for example. Right. Yeah, I was about to say, um, I imagine uh, pharmaceuticals are going to be very, very interested in what comes out of that. Absolutely. And and she does work with, uh, I think she predominantly works at the Howard Hughes uh, Medical Center, um, as I say, Stanford, and she does terrific work there. Yeah, uh, for those, we didn't go over this, but um, Kit is, uh, Kit is, went to school and graduated for pharmacy and then Decided to give his life over to media. <laughs> I discovered that I absolutely hated being a pharmacist. <laughs> so I remember when you made that decision. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was doing my night in. Um, I'm one of those people that I can't, I can't just do something I don't, I don't enjoy. Um, well, that's honestly, it's. I feel you because when I was starting to do commissions for um, drawing. While I enjoyed the drawing aspect as a hobby, as soon as I started going through and making money for it, it became a job, and then I started hating it. And yeah, exactly. When you, you hate what you are doing, you just dread every single day. My current job, I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I can keep my job at my job and keep it in its own bubble, so to speak. Um, yeah, I get you. I get you. But I mean, I'm quite I, lucky in that I've sort of fallen into things I really enjoy doing. Yeah. No, I just really, I didn't realize how interesting it was. I mean, it's really, fire is weird. How so? Really, really weird. Um, well, fire is actually a plasma. Um, and it, the point of the flame, um, most of the flame is, has, has got no oxygen in it whatsoever. There's only this tiny amount. But the crazy thing is, we don't know on a chemical level how a flame extinguishes. We have no idea. We, we don't know what the moment is where a flame goes out and a flame doesn't go out. Talking about like the split second. We don't know, um, <laughs> which is mad. Um, we're really interested at the moment. Uh, as I was I've been talking to sort of various experts on it, um, not only about the sort of stuff that, can, that exists in smoke, but right down to if you have the most simple flame you could imagine, um, which is a methane flame. So carbon, hydrogen, burning with oxygen. That can produce over 300 different chemicals. This tiny, sort of the, the most simple reaction you could possibly have with fire. Um, and so you imagine how things change when a forest fire happens, for example. Um, just the sheer number of different chemicals it can produce. Um, it's, it's, it's astonishing. We're looking at putting out fires using sound. Uh, and we have DARPA in the United States can put out uh, fire, uh, forest fires uh, using sound problem is you need it to be about as loud as a 747 landing and it needs to be at a very very low frequency it's a kind of uh, drubbing sound but you can well, put that, out fires that way 
that makes a lot of sense though, considering the kind of vibrations that would occur specifically with sound waves through air. So I can imagine just that, exactly, yeah. just that pushing and then that creates enough air force specifically to make a fire unsustainable just because of the amount of wind. This is the one that's really interesting. You can put out fire with electric current, electric field, because as I mentioned, it's a plasma, which means it's got a charge. And so you can actually cause flames to bend and move depending on what the electric field is. Um, they did a paper, uh, it came out of Harvard by a, a lab guy uh, called George Whiteside, very, very famous chemist um, in Harvard. And uh, I think it was 2011. And the idea obviously got picked up by Marvel because they then had a superhero putting out one of Lex Luthor's, oh, sorry, uh, DC, um, a superhero putting out uh, a fire on Lex Luthor's plane using electric fields. That's fascinating. Sorry, we are going in completely, <laughs> completely a random to... direction. I was about to say, yeah, let's let's start circling back to kind of what we wanted to discuss is kind of the core of this podcast, which is specifically the LGBTQ community within STEM. Um, in a lot of places, we don't necessarily hear about it because it feels like a particular scientist or a, a group of scientists, either in a research or a more applied field, more often than not, their sexuality doesn't necessarily come into account with how things are presented. and yet. We see a lot of unconscious bias, specifically in STEM in general, but also also in the world. But STEM in particular is where done, there's been a lot of the research done, um, not just in an academic standpoint, but also from a private sector standpoint. Um, yeah, there have been. I mean, I think it's a good thing that a lot of research has been done because it obviously means that people are looking at this problem and thinking, OK, there is a problem. Um, there's all kinds of sort of, as I say, unconscious biases that happen in STEM, things like uh, just uh protective equipment not fitting for example because it's built for a man um Astronauts. or not necessarily yeah, um or not, not for a woman or, or, or someone who's non-binary to current discrimination last year there was actually a report done by um royal society of chemistry uh the institute of physics and the royal astronomical society um and they were looking at how to improve lgbt uh, representation in physical sciences um, so things like chemistry for example physics stuff like that uh, not your gooey biology and they found that 28% of LGBT plus respondents had thought of quitting in the past year. And one in five trans scientists thinks about it often. So that's really worrying. Um, they also found that 16% had experienced exclusionary behavior in the past year. Up to a third had witnessed such behavior happening. And again, this massively raises when you look at trans scientists you know one in three said that they had received uh, exclusionary intimidating or offensive behavior because of their gender identity or sexual identity um in the past uh, year um i can obviously give you all the links to this stuff but um the interesting thing is well you break it down by um by actual sexual identity uh, as well um so in terms of people who found it um exclusionary intimidating offensive or harassing um obviously i mentioned the trans community right uh, lesbians uh much more less uh, likely to experience um hostile environments than than gay men uh 22 compared with 15 percent uh 15 for asexual as well by pansexual 18 percent um so these are not good figures no they're they're not good figures at all it's interesting because this sort of encourages people to remain closeted which you can understand. Um, I think that's actually one of the key things we're looking at in science at the moment. Um, and funnily enough, I was actually talking to a couple of science communicators about it. Um, 
when do you come out? Do you come out? I, I think coming out is a, is a personal choice. Um, and I certainly wouldn't require anyone to come out. There is this idea of being a role model, particularly for the LGBT community in science, because, okay, I can cite you a couple of examples of LGBT scientists, but the problem was because homosexuality in the UK, at least, was illegal. Um, I mean, people went to prison. Oscar Wilde famously went to prison. Alan Turing, uh, the guy who invented the computer to crack the Nazi codes, he was chemically castrated for being homosexual. Um, and you know, it, horrible things happened. Um, so there isn't this this historic examples that you can show. You can't show you know a large number of people. This is someone you can aim to be. And so there's a big encouragement to try and get people to to step forward and come out. That said, I think that it is a personal decision. I completely understand why someone wouldn't do that. I know some very very high profile scientists. Uh, obviously, I won't say who um, uh, who are who I know to be uh, LGBT. And um, they don't say so in public, and I don't blame them. Me and Noel had talked about this in that um, Women's History podcast because we both found out at the same time that um, Sally Ride was a lesbian. Um, and we spoke about it briefly about if she was able to come out earlier, what it might, uh, what effect it might have had on um, les- LBGD, LGBT. LBTG youth. By the same time, she would have probably got like blackballed from the from science at the same time, and it sucks. Sally Ride's a great example because she went through so much adversity this program because of 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 being a woman. Um, There's uh, are you familiar with her role in the Challenger disaster? Uh, Not 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 the actual Challenger disaster, but the investigation into it. Uh, No. So there was a commission uh, set up to work out why the Challenger built an O-ring, which you imagine is a little circular rubber disc, right. a little, little ring. And that morning it was too cold and the the, the, the rubber cracked, right. it broke. That's all that happened. And Sally Ride and uh, a general who was involved in the in the project as well, they knew that, but they couldn't say it. Uh, Sally Ride couldn't say it because... Um, she was a woman and she'd be seen as criticizing the government and it'd be a disaster. The general couldn't say it because he knew because of top secret stuff he'd seen. And so they, they very carefully led a physicist called Richard Feynman, a Nobel Prize winner. Very, very smart guy. Uh, they sort of took him out. To, they said, hey, look, my car won't start because the carburetor is cold. Oh, it's a cold morning. Isn't that interesting, Richard? And they did all this kind of sort of subtle hinting to him uh, that eventually he worked out what the problem was on his own. And he announced that the O-rings, he actually famously took one of the O-rings, compressed it and put it in a glass of ice water during the committee hearing and pulled it out and then just broke it apart to show why the Challenger blew up. Is that why he's famous? Uh, Richard Feynman is famous for a, a lot more, to, uh, mainly to do with things like quantum physics. He was a fantastic science communicator, but he did work uh, towards the end of his life on the Challenger disaster. All right, yeah, because I've, I heard that name and I was like, I mean, he also he also worked on the Manhattan Project to build the atomic weapons. And, oh, that's uh, so. the other day that I other place that I heard of. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, he, he was he was one of the most successful science communicators uh, of all time. He had this fantastic lecture series. He was like the, the the hardcore physics version of Carl Sagan for a while. Yeah, my the, my science communicators is basically limited to like Bill Nye and the occasional Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, 
I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, but uh, I, I kind of get that. I mean, in the UK, we've got a guy called Brian Cox, who, um, who I, I think Brian Cox is pretty awesome, actually. I really enjoy his stuff. He's but, really uh, fascinating, yeah. Anyway, so um, so that's that's Richard Feynman. But my point is that Sally Ride couldn't say what she wanted to say. She couldn't tell people this is why astronauts have died, in part because of a gender. So the idea of having to come out as LGBT as well it's just an extra layer of pressure that, you know, why should it matter? Um, but it does somehow. And this is literally just another example of why the best approach to feminism, at least in my opinion, is specifically an intersectional one. Because there's all these different axes in which these different biases can occur. Not just on gender identity, but also on sexuality and race. Um Kit, you actually hit on it very nicely in the articles that you did on unconscious bias. Uh, I actually want to go back to that really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you've spent a lot of time among the research community specifically around uh, physics and discovering these new elements and research for your book, Super Heavy. Based on what you observed, have you seen any sort of direction one way or another for potentially, you know, have things improved since you've written that article? Have things gotten worse? Um, well, recently we had a, a big scandal um, in the in the chemistry community uh, and, and touched on the physics community, uh, which sort of I don't know if this improves it or doesn't improve it, but it's uh, it, it, it's worth explaining in full. Um, there is a very famous uh, science journal called Angavante. Um, it is the German Chemical Society's um, science magazine. It is probably the third largest in the world. It is hugely, hugely influential. And the opinion, um, it appeared about two weeks ago, was written by a scientist called Thomas Hudlicky. Uh, He's based at Brock University in Canada. And he was doing a a sort of a retrospective uh, look at this paper that came out 30 years ago to see whether or not uh, organic synthesis, which is the area he works in, had improved. And he had some... uh, (laughs) Horrific views, frankly. Um, uh, so I'll give you some some quotes that uh, that, that were actually appeared in the paper. Uh, the diversity of the workforce in the last two decades, many groups or individuals have been designated with preferential status, uh, in spite of the fact that the percentage of women and minorities have greatly increased. Uh, it follows that in a social equilibrium, preferential treatment of one group leads to disadvantages for another. Um, later on, he clarifies that he's referring to white men um, in this. Uh, well, white men, men in specifically, actually. Um, uh, the rise in emphasis on hiring practices suggests that even mandate inequality in terms of absolute numbers of people um, is counterproductive uh, as it results in discriminating against the most meritorious candidates. Uh, such practice affects the format of interviews and has led to the emergence of mandatory training workshops, uh, quotes, on gender equi- equity, inclusion, diversity and discrimination. Note two. Note two is basically slamming these as, uh, as not any good. Um <laughs> I mean, there are so many different areas you can pick out of this particular paper uh, and what um, Hudlicky said. Um, he, I, I actually took some of the quotes and I set them against uh, Dr. Doom uh, from Marvel, uh, saying them because, because that is the kind of level that they're at. You know, He had a diagram which uh, was in the center and a lot of different arrows going down and one arrow, yeah. There was a one color arrow for positive effect, one color arrow for negative effect. Um, diversity had a negative impact as far as he was concerned on the field. Um, there was um, one particular quote which was just 
astonishing. Um, uh, he, I mean, there was one part where he where he basically insulted the whole of China, saying that uh, that Chinese um, researchers fake their results because they want to get in Western journals, um, which obviously offended an awful lot of people for, for very clear reasons. Um, I'm just trying to find the actual uh, quote about. Uh, I mean, there was another part where he said that uh, the people had to bow down. An apprentice must bow down un- unconditionally to their master. Um, oh, yes. While this effort is commendable in order to increase the participation of women in science, it diminishes the contributions by men. This is an actual quote from the paper. Now, as I say, this went into one of the most prestigious science journals in the world. And the backlash was immediate. Um, this pa- This journal had... Nobel Prize winners on its editorial board. Um, it had some of the most prestigious chemists in the world. Fifteen of them immediately resigned, including two Nobel Prize winners. Um, just left. <laughs> the community was up in arms uh, on Twitter. It was all anyone was talking about. Editorials were written in Chemistry World. They were written in Science Magazine, which is probably the biggest uh, magazine. Uh, Nature got involved as well to, to, to tackle this. Um, immediately the paper was pulled from the website and then it was retracted within 24 hours, which is unheard of, really, in, in terms of a paper. Two editors who obviously saw this and had passed it through have been uh, suspended. And the two people who actually peer-reviewed this, so part of a science paper is that it's given out to someone in your field and they look at it and go, yeah, this is this is good science. Right. If people pass this paper, they, have no, they will no longer be used, viewers, ever again by this, this journal. So they're taking it very, very seriously. Now, the question is, is that progress that this happened at all? Or is it progress that immediately there was a backlash? People didn't go, yeah, he's right. Um, my feeling is actually there is progress because immediately everyone came out and said, this guy does not speak for me, which is something that you might not have seen 30 years ago. Uh, we are seeing that increasingly in science. Um, there is, uh, do you know who James Watson is? No, um, that's not my head. Not okay. Um, so the, the invention of DNA was actually discovered by a uh, woman called Rosalind Franklin, and uh, her research was stolen and g- genuinely stolen by a guy called Morris Wilkins, and it was given to Watson and Crick, who then made the the breakthrough. Uh, and Watson, Crick, and Wilkins won the Nobel Prize. Rosalind Franklin got nothing. Um, Wait, true story. Let me, let me ask a question. Um, is this the woman in Baltimore, Maryland? Uh, no, she was in um, she was in London. All and, right, the, uh, I was thinking about the other thing that we spoke about in the podcast that sounded similar. All right, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Anyway, yeah. So Rosalind Franklin. I mean, there's actually a plaque uh, outside the Eagle Pub where Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA happened, and Cambridge University students carve and Rosalind Franklin underneath it constantly. <laughs> anyway, so James Watson was one of these guys, and. <sighs> I can't say that he is racist. I don't want to libel him. He certainly has said things that are racist in the past. Um, and previously, he was such a high-profile figure, Nobel Prize winner, very, very famous scientist, that people just kind of kind of went, yeah, we don't agree with him, but we, we keep him around. Now that's not happening. Universities are kicking him out saying we don't want to, we don't want to be associated with this person. So you are seeing cultural changes. Um, They're fixing broken stairs. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's not a bad thing. Um, we also see programs starting up like uh, in the UK, we've got something called Athena, Squ- Athena Swan, which is deliberately okay. designed set of standards that, uh, that departments, university departments can compare themselves against to make sure that they are being an inclusive and diverse place to work, which is fantastic. And it is seeing real change. 
But even so, there I mean, there's, there's still a long way to go. There's no question of that. Is it better than it was 20, 30 years ago? I mean, the best example I can give you is that university 20, 30 years ago, there is no way I would have come out as LGBTQ in front of my friends. Uh, there's n- well, I didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I can tell you that didn't happen. Um, whereas today, um, you look at, uh, at groups and uh, LGBT communities in in science, but also in universities in general, people are much more accepting of that. People are much more comfortable with that. They're having conversations. Um, you're seeing more uh, rainbow flags everywhere. The Royal Society uh, of Chemistry, where I used to work uh, on uh, on Pride, they actually gave out um, rainbow lanyards for each member of staff. Um, and you didn't have to have them. You could have them as an option. Um, I think probably 90% of staff are still wearing them. You know, it's just been embraced and adopted. So there is definitely a systemic change happening. Is it happening fast enough? <laughs> I don't know. But 20 years ago, if you told me that gay marriage would have been legal um, in the UK, I might believe you. Um, in the US, no way. I would never believe you. Uh, here we are. And this is particularly relevant, and we see this a lot specifically in the private sector, um, especially in the tech industry. Um, if you were talking about this sort of thing during the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, it might have been something that was kind of talked about in private, but wasn't necessarily something that was really specifically advertised or advocated for. And now in a lot of these large tech companies, you have employee resource groups specifically for LGBTQ uh, employees. You have employee resource groups for various different ethnicities and races. And they're doing a lot of education for folks who are not part of those communities specifically to help understand what their point of view is. Um, something that, that actually is fairly relevant right now um, as of the time of this recording is for Juneteenth, which is specifically um, in the United States, the day where basically s- s- the the slavery was officially abolished. It was in Texas, yeah. I think yeah, it was, specifically in Texas, yeah. Um, that was Oklahoma, because that was a big issue with Trump. Um. So that's actually a different thing. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma specifically was a kind of a hotbed for a lot of black entrepreneurs during the civil rights era. They basically kind of created their own stock market there. Yeah. So it was less about the actual location of the announce of the announcement that Juneteenth specifically signifies, but more the additional significance of the location itself. But anyways, back to Juneteenth. A lot of tech companies are either giving their employees the day off specifically to go volunteer for, you know, black supporting organizations or providing lots of educational options through employee resource groups and encouraging employees to limit their meetings for the day specifically so they can attend these various webinars, listen to various podcasts that are coming out from their employee resource groups. Especially with the recent civil unrest in the U.S., there's been a lot of conversations about, okay, we fucked up on a huge scale. How can we fix this? I think that's really important. Um, in when we come to tech things like that, uh, I mean, uh, I think Peter Thiel um, from PayPal is is gay, isn't he? Famously, um, so you're looking at one of the big players in tech. He kind of founded what PayPal in what the the end of the '90s, um, where he couldn't, you know, sort of come out and things like that, and so. This culture change is fantastic. Um, one thing that's worth touching on with um, not just in science, this happens throughout, but uh, it goes back to the intersectionality you're talking about. 
one problem that I've seen is when it comes to equality, diversity, and inclusion, there's sort of one one pot of funding that goes into that. And so I know that um, that certain groups, um, particularly minority groups, uh, feel very frustrated in the United States in that when funding goes to to gay rights groups, for example, gay men, they're seeing the funding go only to white men again. The funding that is being ring-fenced for um, you know, uh, black and minority ethnic groups, suddenly it's going to white men. And, and, and I can understand that that's a, a frustration. Um, we need to make sure that people realize that diversity and equality and inclusion has that intersectionality, that there are different groups and these different groups all have different needs. Yeah, that's something else specifically to point out too, especially in incidences of violence against marginalized groups. You see a higher concentration specifically among trans people of color, specifically black and indigenous people of color who are trans. And it was and it was a, it was a it was a it was a trans person of color who founded Stonewall. Um, yep. Uh it's yeah, Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick. Um so it's these figures that basically are the instigators of what we now consider pride. Something that has come up quite a bit this year, especially around various protests going on, is that Pride started as a riot. And a lot of members of the LGBT community who are not people of color are going out there and specifically marching in protest and in solidarity with these groups, specifically in that spirit. And also, I don't know if, Kit, I don't know how much you've been following this, but even just recently, there have been a lot of protections that have been rolled back specifically for trans people around their health care. I have been following it. And um, actually, uh, I mean, earlier this week, we had the Supreme Court ruling six to three, um, protecting uh, trans and and specifically the first Supreme Court ruling, I believe, that specifically mentions trans people um, and saying that you cannot discriminate on the basis of, um, of, of sexuality and, and sexual orientation. And they specifically mentioned you cannot um, discriminate on the basis of being transgender. Yep, and they use the Civil Rights Act of 1964 specifically to apply that, which is really fascinating because that's coming into, it's kind of circling back to a lot of things that are even going on now. Um, a theme yeah. that I'm frequently seeing among, you know, feminist rallies and Black Lives Matters rallies is a lot of these folks who, are sec who have, you know, who have children, who have grandchildren, who are now protesting when they were protested back in the 60s. And the common th theme is, we still have to protest this shit? Absolutely. Um, in, in the UK, there is, there's this bizarre idea some people have that racism doesn't exist in the UK um, because you don't see it in the same level of uh, it is in the US. It doesn't uh, oh. appear in the same way. Oh. They're not oh. obviously understanding um, is the whole concept of microaggressions, for example, and there is absolute racism in the UK, no question. Um, We've actually had our own uh, uh, protests that have uh, that have supported Black Lives Matter. Um, John Boyega spoke at one of them. He screamed that he didn't care if he had a career at the end of this, which was just beautiful, you know, and, coming out. And, and as a follow-up to that, film studios have literally been like, no, dude, you absolutely still have a career with us. Yeah, whether too, too, it is right. <laughs> a Yeah, whether it's a genuine show of solidarity or corporations realizing what side what side of their bread they're the what side of what side of bread they're butter it's buttered it, i can't talk i promise <laughs> now you know how i felt at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> oh shush they know what side of the bread 
the butter is on in this particular case. They they have a better understanding of what public sentiment is right now. A um, butter understanding. Do a better Bill. butter understanding. Damn it, Bill. Damn it, Kit. You're not helping. And okay. um, a lot of and a lot of polls out there have gone to show specifically that you know the majority of Amer- Americans, even if they're not necessarily out there in the streets, they support what the protesters are trying to say. They support that message. Uh, some people have this bizarre idea that there, there is sort of a limit to a limited capital, if you like, in that um, that you've got to say, you know, what about us and what about us? What about us? You can you can believe in black rights and Native American rights and gay rights at the same time. That's okay. You can do that. Yep. Um, you should do that. Absolutely. Uh, the, in the UK, um, just just to sort of continue on, um, we've had this big in Bristol, um, which was built essentially on the back of the slave trade. Um, there was a statue of a, um, a slave owner and he was, he, he did a lot of sort of charitable works and schools and things like that, but it was all built on the back of slavery. And there was a statue of him in the middle of the, uh, of the town and people ripped down the iron statue and threw it in the sea. Um, this the is Google a guy who's locator has since been moved to reflect the fact that it is now in the ocean. <laughs> Get in the sea. Um, and I think he transported 80,000 people, uh, 80,000, something like 18,000 women and children were thrown overboard or killed, you know, horrific, absolutely horrific. Um, and there was, and people called Churchill was a racist uh, on, on the monument of Winston Churchill. He absolutely was. There's no question about that. Um, all the records are there. The interesting thing is that uh, the statues were being boxed up to protect them. And the neo-Nazis turned up uh, the far right to 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 guard their history and all that kind of stuff. So we've kind of stumbled into the same territory America has been experiencing with the Confederacy movement, um, to remove statues of the Confederate leaders and to rename bases, things like that, which I support, by the way. And uh, amen. And I think my favourite quote, quote I saw it online um, that someone said is, "I haven't seen a bunch of uh, of Nazis so worked about up against, about something in a box since Raiders of the Lost Ark," um, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Well, one of the things that sums up the uh, the British attitude to this. Um, one of the things that I seen down, I mean, that was like a uh, equivalent is, um, look, you had the Confederacy for five years. Pokemon Go has lasted longer than that. Shut your hell. <laughs> uh, they've actually mentioned that um, Nickelback Pokemon specifically Go? has lasted longer than the Confederacy. Nickelback certainly have. I don't know if Pokemon Go has. I think I don't no, think Pokemon, Pokemon Go is five. Uh, yeah. It's tw- it's 2020. It was released like 2015. Okay, so that's less than five years. So think of it that think of it next time <laughs> I'm, I'm... for the folks who are getting upset about Confederate statues being ripped down. Just remember, as the internet memes have said, it could have been worse. They could have replaced them with Pikachus. Gotta so hide my statue. Yeah, I'll go. I'll be perfectly happy with that. I mean, Confe- yeah, it's a little bit creepy. <laughs> Thing is, glorification of the Confederacy didn't happen in the lifetime of anyone who was living in the Confederacy. Oh, this is something that emerged essentially through the Ku Klux Klan in the, in the 20th century. 1904 the, about from what I was reading earlier. Yeah. Um, there was a, a, this, a that big sort of Confederacy round, Mount Rushmore thing. There's that big carving, if you know the one I'm referring to. Um, I think that was erected in the 70s, the 1970s. And this, this is not about celebrating history or recognizing history. One, why would you want to? Why would you want to say, oh, I remember that my my great-great-granddad was a racist? Why would you possibly want to do that? I don't understand that need. It's but, states' rights. 
It wasn't about states' rights. I, uh, I would apologize to anybody in the South who is listening right now. Um, Bill is from Boston. I was born in Pennsylvania. Noelle is from Ohio. We got nothing but Yankees on this show. Um, actually, no, I'm not sorry at all. What am I talking about? Correction. I am originally yeah. from New Jersey. I live in Boston. <laughs> if anyone wants to say that the... Uh, that the, uh, the You're still the, a Yank. Uh, I lived in the American South Civil for half War my wasn't, life. So. Anyone wants to say the American Civil War wasn't largely about slavery or slavery was its main cause, then come at me, bro. I really couldn't care less. I'm a historian. I can take it. I um, got- so, fun story about that. In my AP history class, they were trying to frame it from an economic standpoint, and nobody in the class was having it. And this was back in 2001, like 2000, 2001, when I was taking this course. And this is in high school. It's like, yes, Civil War is about economic issues such as cotton, and it was like, and slavery. Economic issues are slavery. The, the, the transfer to an industrialized format. I mean, the best way to look at it is um, if anyone's particularly interested in this and why that's a stupid idea, I would recommend the, uh, McPherson's book, Battle Cry of Freedom. It's probably the best one volume treatise on the American Civil War. Um, and it pretty much debunks that whole idea. I'd also look at something like the Trent Affair, for example, which happened during the American Civil War, which proved that British, um, who were largely receiving uh, cotton for their mills, weren't interested in your slavery bullshit. Uh, in fact, there were protests in... Uh, can I say bullshit? Oh, too late. I've already done so. Say bullshit, I've yeah. said multiple times. You can say bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah, there were protests and uh, by workers in, in Manchester and in Lancashire saying, we don't want this cotton coming from the southern US because they're racists. Um there's a lot that's made up of the idea that the British had a military observer uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg that was with the Confederacy. Yes, there was a British officer with the Confederacy at Gettysburg. That is absolutely true. He wasn't there officially. He was basically a tourist. He made his own way there, went up to Confederate generals and went, hello, I'm a British officer. Can I come and watch you fight? And they went, yeah, because they were too dumb to realize that it was just some guy who was just chancing it and he wanted a bit of a, you know, entertainment. Um, that's amazing. So... <laughs> Absolutely true. You, you can look it up. Um, the whole idea of, uh, of sort of large support for the Confederacy, it just did not exist. The Confederacy was never going to have Britain and France come in on its side. That was never going to happen. Um, and they're forgetting, obviously, that Britain had abolished slavery at that point. Although that's kind of a bizarre gray area because actually slavery only was recognized as existing in the UK um, in 1997. Uh, before that, we didn't have slaves. Um, apparently. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Um, that's why William Wilberforce and, uh, and, and all this kind of work was, <laughs> uh, was done to, uh, to emancipate. It's, it's an icky part of history. And, and, and to be honest with you, Britain still hasn't really come to terms with it. Um, America still hasn't really come to terms with it. We're trying, but we no, still haven't come to terms with it. Basically, we are about, we are 50 years in to trying to repair things that was, it's, that are literally 400 years in the making. Yep. Um, speaking of history, Kit, um, you mentioned that you're getting your PhD in history and philosophy of science. What specific topic are you covering as part of your PhD? Um, so my specific topic is uh, is what I call transact uh, transuranic elements. So these are elements that don't exist on Earth. They're things like plutonium, and it's why we we created them and why we were looking for them during the Cold War. That's specifically why. And the answer is atomic weapons. That's basically why we were doing it. But actually, we got a whole of useful stuff out of it that we would never have otherwise. Um, so uh, 
in your house, you probably have one of these highly radioactive elements that don't exist on Earth. Um, in every smoke detector, uh, it's a little bit of something called americium. Yep. Uh, it's element uh, 85, and it does not exist on Earth. We have to make it. So it is a, a, a building block of the universe that we have made and created to save your life. That was, that was an episode of the show Young Sheldon when... Uh, young Sheldon was trying to make a nuclear generator to power his house. Which is, is, is fine. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, there's an episode of the Big Bang Theory where Sheldon actually discovers element 119, I think it is, um, which we haven't done yet. We're still looking for it. So that got yeah, maybe, maybe we can too. get some help. I'm sure Jim Parsons can uh, do some calculations. <laughs> I'm sure he can. Didn't he get married? Doesn't he have a very nice husband? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think he's got a nice husband, something like that. I, yeah. I, I, because I remember his coming out was so nonchalant that basically it's Jim Parsons. <laughs> basically, there was an article. It's like, and then Jim Jim Parsons' fiance showed up to give him a drink, and they and he left, and it, that was it. <laughs> and um, true true story. About two years back, I was I was having a beer um, at a place called Lindau in Germany. I was just hanging out, and a guy sat down opposite me, and it was it was George Smoot. Uh, George Smoot is a uh, a Big Bang. Uh, expert he is the big bang expert won the nobel prize for it and he appeared on the big bang theory as himself he's sheldon's idol and so i'm sat there i'm have he's having a beer i'm having a, a coke and we chat for about you know an hour over sticky ribs have a laugh all kinds of stuff we talk about and what i didn't realize was that he hired beyonce's assistant so that he could get her hollywood connections so she could get him on the big bang theory true story <laughs> anyway on. Uh. Sorry, I thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought Renee was going to say something. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. Actually, I do kind of have a thought that's a little bit tangential to this, but also vaguely related. Is just how the culture around celebrities, just in general, coming out has just changed so much. Uh, we remember back in I think it was like the late '90s, maybe early 2000s, specifically with Ellen DeGeneres, oh, basically man. having her character on the sitcom come out as a lesbian and then also have Ellen DeGeneres herself come out as a lesbian at roughly the same time. And there is such a big scandal and hubbub and to do about it. But now these days, you know, we have situations like Jim Parsons where, you know, Oh, his, Oh, his, his fiance shows up, gives him a drink. And then, you know, we call it a day or, you know, folks getting married to their longtime partners finally, because they've just been together for decades. And, you know, when, uh, same-sex marriage became legal they're like finally we can actually do the thing we've been kind of that you can actually have the legal truth you've already been living for decades um Liber liberace famously sued his papers for saying he was homosexual and won liberace come on <laughs> liberace um fantastically camp performer and I, I appreciate that just being camp doesn't necessarily mean that you are you are homosexual um but uh he didn't hide it um and uh, and he 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 brought his uh, his his partner on stage and things like that. Um, so the idea that we've we've moved to that to then this this shock of people coming out, but now it not being a big thing at all. Um, I remember in the UK, I don't know if you you're familiar with him. There's a a guy called Darren Brown who's a uh, a magician. I love him. He's amazing. He is he's, fantastic. He's terrific, and he came out. Um, and afterwards, he said one thing that surprised me. Is that nobody cared. I was like, oh, okay. 
right? It was this big thing that was sort of boiling up inside me, and then and then you pop the balloon, and no one cares. Yeah, um, and that's honestly that is more of the reaction that's coming out these days. It's like it, that you know, sexuality other than heterosexuality is becoming less taboo, and actually something that has come up a lot in my own experience um, is specifically the role of the AIDS crisis and how it set back progress to LGBTQ acceptance literally decades because there was this giant scare about this disease that was, you know, supposedly the gay mm -hmm. disease. When you were that going question. into like the late 70s, early 80s, we were in a place where if things had progressed from there, same-sex marriage would probably have been legal in like a decade sooner, if not more. And then suddenly there's this huge stigma around homosexuality because of the AIDS crisis. I mean, I, I think that uh, there is no question that the AIDS epidemic um, had a massive impact, particularly because it was badged as this, you know, it was the gay disease. And there was, there was stories of, you know, people having friends dying and no one speaking about it. There was recently a, a very prominent um, campaigner during the AIDS crisis who, who passed away and uh, who did fantastic work in New York a very very aggressive but he needed to be aggressive because he needed to get the message out there um but when you look into the history of uh, of it the, the fact that um uh, homosexuality was considered uh, a, a mental illness um by the american um the american psychiatric association which writes the book on these things and it was only really in the uh, the 1970s that they actually changed the definitions and said no homosexuality is not a mental illness I believe it was 1973, something like that, um, and uh, and yeah, and, and interestingly enough, the the psychiatrist who, who proposed it uh, was was gay um, and hadn't come out because he couldn't. Um, but yeah, it was removed. Uh, yeah, officially 1973, and then never appeared again in 1974. It was just gone. Um, so the idea that we've gone from this idea of it being a mental illness through to uh, making massive progress, having it dented by AIDS, having it that massive delay, which cost lives. I mean, let's be honest here. People died because of that and yep. and still die to this day. Um, South Africa, for example, has um, inequalities, um, particularly in, in the LGBT community, um, but also sort of in the wider communities as well. And the misinformation, um, they had a, a president called Jacob Zuma. Um, I don't know if you're too familiar with Zuma. He was a, um, it was, there's a lot of tribal politics essentially in, in South, South African politics. And so he was largely impervious because he was a chief and he said, vote for me. And so people voted for him. Um, he said that, um, that he, he had sex with a woman who had AIDS, uh, but he was cured because he had a shower afterwards. Um, this was the president of South Africa saying it. So there's this huge problem in, um, in South Africa, um, uh, the, the 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 figures that they actually have of prevalence of AIDS in South Africa, and particularly uh, the country South Africa, but also the region South Africa, is astonishing and scary. And these are some of the most impoverished countries in the world. Yeah, and not only that, but because of various mindsets, whether they're tribal or they're coming from you know colonizer missionaries, what have you, they're the ideas about the LGBT community in general, specifically in Africa, is still significantly behind what we would consider more developed countries or more white countries. Let's be honest here. 
uh, one of the uh, uh, programs that I volunteer with out in tech specifically has tech workers in the LGBT community helping out with organizations for the LGBT community in Africa, like helping them set up websites or additional outreach programs, what have you, basically putting their skills to use for these places that don't necessarily have the same technical resources or that kind of knowledge. So it's really kind of, you see that a lot and it's a little scary. Um, I personally helped build a site for an LGBTQ group in Rwanda and their initial website was literally out of 1995. We were able to convert them to a WordPress site that was a lot cleaner, had a much better interface and I offered to help them with, you know, any sort of additional tech support after that. They've never gotten back to me and I followed up and like, they're doing just fine. Um, but those are the kind of resources that groups like that need specifically to, well, in a word, catch up. And that's right. not even talking about legislation. That's just, that's just talking general culture and giving these groups just a place to be themselves and to have that kind of solidarity with people like them. I was just doing a quick fact check while I have a look around it. Uh, so Jacob Zuma, I, I don't think he was actually a chief, um, but he certainly had a, a large power block because of his Zulu heritage. Um, so I just want to clarify that. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, I was going to say, while I was doing, have a look at it, it was quite interesting. His middle name uh, translates as one who smiles while causing you harm, which is a staggeringly amazing middle name. Wait, that is his, terrifying. His, his name was Umbridge? Oh... Of course, I, we're I, working the Harry Potter fandom in here because Bill is in the room. Oh, is it no, Harry no, Potter I, was, I, was I was working the X angle, so <laughs> that's fair. I, I have no idea what um, you said was. I am not familiar with the Harry Potter books. It's it's uh, I it's a horrible character in the books, written by a horrible person. But I, I put it onto the name of a horrible person in real life to just to wipe them out of memory. So. And because we have a lot of American listeners, yes, there's in fact a British person who doesn't know what Harry Potter is. It well, happens. Well, I tried to read Harry Potter and I just couldn't get past that. I think I got to some girl was uh, Hermione. Hermione was trapped in a toilet with a ogre, and um, and I was like, this is just not for me. Troll, but I understand. Um, but yeah, rate. but yes, but that's that's another thing that we're talking about the um, issues with the care and things like that with the rollbacks that our dear president recently put through in regards to healthcare for the trans community. On top of that, you have Jerk Rawlings going through and using her giant platform to basically be a super turf. Um, you got people still believing that being trans is a mental illness when it's not just everything's just been piling up on top of everything so yeah and as this a whole idea of trying to create distinction between sex and gender and all this stuff it's you know unless you're talking from a very scientific and technical standpoint in which case you're even muddying the waters there who cares what is it to you, <laughs> you know, this idea of, of there being no safe spaces it's bollocks of course that's bollocks everyone knows it's not true uh, it's a smokescreen sorry <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, and also going back to um, turf, I personally prefer the term fart, which is feminism appropriating reactionary transphobe. Ooh, I got to admit, I quite I quite like that. But uh, I did manage to uh, to sneak in a, a reference with uh, with turf once, which was 
which uh, which was a little bit naughty, but uh, I managed. To, I was I was on a show with uh, with someone who was very similar, and um, we were, we were discussing something around, and um, I, I just said, you know, I can't remember what the person said. It was something about um, about uh, sort of you know meat and, and seafood or something like that, and I said surf and turf, um, sort of very pointedly, uh, gesturing to myself and turf. So <laughs> I managed to get well on through. But. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that, that actually runs very similar to another joke that we hear specifically in feminist uh, feminist communities is the swerf and turf, which is the sex worker exclusionary radical feminists and the trans exclusionary. Oh, man. It's because sex workers don't have it hard enough. Right? So I want to just go a little bit off the rail, off topic, but still on the sides aspect of it, because you are a professional and we generally <laughs> okay. don't get a lot of professionals to be able to explain parts of their trade in the community. Yes, we do have people that do their trades and explain things, but um, you would be someone that we'd like to talk about. COVID-19, all right? What is your thoughts from your perspective as a science communicator? How the virus and the reaction is being communicated? And if you could make a change on how it's communicated, what would you do? Thank you, Broken. Hello. All right. We Welcome got back. back. Yay. Sorry about that. I got so angry, I actually pulled the cord out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That question got me so angry. You. Got you. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to delete everything in between there. Just start from that point. <laughs> okay. COVID-19 and how it's been communicated. It largely depends on which country we're talking about. I think there are mm. countries that have done a fantastic job. I have nothing but praise for New Zealand and how they've handled it. If we're talking about the UK and the US and Brazil in particular, it has been an absolute clusterfuck. I mean, it's, it's been a category in how to do things wrong. People have died because of a government incompetence in all of these countries. There's no question about that as far as I'm concerned. Um, the misinformation that was initially given, um, particularly from some of the people in the administration, the confusing and double standards and uncertainty about exactly what the advice was. We saw that in the UK. Um, there was a big scandal because uh, one of the government um, advisors, a guy called Dominic Cummings, um, actually broke all the rules. He traveled the entire length of the country with COVID-19. He was infected um, and, then, and then went into quarantine somewhere else. He broke all the, the quarantine ideas the idea of self-isolation he then took a trip out to a castle which he claimed was to test his eyesight i mean it was all garbage and um huge scandal in the uk but what trump has been coming out with is an absolute nonsense i mean injecting bleach what was that man thinking oh well, he, of course he wasn't thinking he was just brain farting he was literally sort of you know thoughts were coming in and, and straight it was going out of his mouth um, but of course he doesn't have the mental capacity to actually have decent thoughts and so you were just getting you know shit goes in shit goes out um that was horrific uh, the idea that i mean it was just, just madness um the who currently recommend that everyone wears masks mm -hmm. um i mean donald, donald trump's reaction to the who was to stop funding the who uh, the people who are trying to save the world and he's going yeah they're the bad guys listen to me guys it's Absolutely yeah, insane. and and on top of that, he's actually been saying that we should stop testing because then the numbers would go down. 
I saw, yeah. I saw that, yeah. Funny that, if you stop testing people, the number of people that, that, that are positive tests go down. That's what happens, because you've got a lower... It's the. I mean, to be honest with you, the other thing that ties into is the poor provision of US healthcare in general. US, yeah. I mean, the healthcare system is an absolute nightmare. It is, it is a national shame, as far as I'm concerned, to have a healthcare system where people die because they cannot get can't afford to have the bills for the rest of their life. That is disgusting. That is despicable. You're absolutely right. And there's been a lot of call for single-payer healthcare for a long time now. Unfortunately, the that particular option basically got gutted out of the Affordable Care Act, specifically because everybody's like, but that's communism. Exactly. I mean, you've got this madness. Um, I mean, there's so many things that have been just driving me up the wall with the United States at the moment. I mean, the one thing that I oh, always... trust me, uh, Bill and I both understand we live here. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, you, you had people breaking essentially the Third Amendment, and uh, it's it's funny the people that were saying about the guns and uh, we need the Second Amendment in case the, the we need to rise up as a militia to protect us against the army. Literally, that was happening, and they didn't do a thing. It's funny; it was almost like they were using that as an excuse to keep their guns. Um, you know, what they really That's mean was funny. we're using it to protect it against people that don't look like me. Yep. Pricks, yep. pricks, pricks. Um, North Carolina has been an absolute disgrace in terms of how it's handled with uh, with with COVID. There are thousands dead because of poor um, governments. It, it boils down to poor governance. And you know, there are so many different. And it's actually kind of interesting because right now, especially with a lot of the protests and whatnot that were going on, a lot of the protesters were trying to social distance. They were wearing masks. You know, they were doing everything they could specifically to respect all of these things around a pandemic as much as they could. And so, you know, two weeks out, people are trying to blame, you know, spiking cases on the protests when it's really a lot of people who are actually, who are actually you know, going out, breaking shelter in place orders, breaking quarantine, specifically to go out and do the things that they normally do on a Memorial Day weekend. Yep. Well, pre- precisely. Um, you know, this, this whole spike in cases tied with the protests, it, it's, a, it's a false illusion. Um, the people who've got, the, got these new cases, were they at the protests? They weren't. <laughs> I bet they were out at, uh, you know, at uh, shopping at, uh, at the strip mall or whatever they, they, they do. They with were their, at their the spare beach. Mm-hmm. They were at the beach. Um, and also, um, as a, on a related note, um, I'm actually going to, I actually have to go get a test for COVID-19 tomorrow, specifically because I had a trip to the emergency room last week. And that was, and due to other factors, my doctor's like, you know what, you're kind of high risk because of these other things, uh, other, this other guidance that I've received. I know some of it is bullshit, but I would rather have you take it than not. And I'm like, you know what, I'm totally okay with you having me go in specifically just to know. I was, I gotta be, I gotta be, I gotta admit, I was personally scared to go into the emergency room last week because of what was going on with me, because I thought there was a chance that I could potentially put myself in a place where I would be at risk. And there are folks within my household who are higher risk than I am that I don't want to get sick. I think it speaks volumes about people's character when they say things like, you know, I was going to be the old that die or the, uh, or the, or the ill, you know, this is this concept of expendability. I mean, what? How do you how do you get that logically? Of course, we need to do whatever we can to to stop this and nip it in the bud. And it's a global phenomenon. I think one thing I would say is that the COVID pandemic um, probably wasn't preventable. 
I don't think that that was ever going to be the case. It was always going to sort of drip out. Certainly, we could have mitigated it. It acted far, far sooner. And um, and a delay that happened, um, particularly in the UK and particularly in the US, nothing short of a national scandal. Absolutely, considering there have been communications specifically saying that the White House administration specifically knew about it in the beginning of January. Of course it did. Of course it did. Um, and I appreciate that there are nuances and balances and things like that and got to sort of take into account economic crashes and, and all that kind of stuff. We talk about human lives and we're talking about long-term impact and where the dust settles, um, history is not going to judge Donald Trump and his administration kindly on this or, or really anything. Um, I'm just trying to think of something good that they've actually done. Um, there must be something. I think the old, I think even the remote, remote, remote inkling of an, a good thing that may have happened was I think it first came out of Trump's mouth about the idea of sending everybody a stimulus check. And that was it. And that was only one check. But at the same time, we had, I think it was Andrew Wang was the presidential candidate. Um, I could be wrong. He was really, yeah, he was really pushing for the universal basic income anyway, a part of his platform um, for presidency. Universal basic income. I, I, it's funnily enough, actually, COVID-19 has um, one thing it will have a massive knock-on effect on is that no longer can any company say you can't work from home. Because absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone knows that's the case. So um, there are so many homes and families that do not have a satisfactory internet provision, broadband, things like that. For too long, it's not been considered an essential service. I think that the pandemic has proved it is. Um, so if anything, that should accelerate that. Um, at least I hope it does. But yeah, the, the, the idea that you can't work from home, that, that, you, that you have to have a car, it's all, it's all garbage. And it's very clearly been proven that by the pandemic. Yeah, and these conversations were already happening before the pandemic started. Um, I, for one, was working from home three to four days a week, depending on the week. And now I'm working from home pretty much exclusively. And I can also work from multiple places all over the country, as long as I have an appropriate work device and access to the VPN. Like this really kind of shakes the whole foundation of, you know, going into an office and having to work in an office, at least for specifically uh, intelligence workers, like people who are information workers specifically. As opposed to, you know, there's always going to be a need for essential services. I have friends who are doing essential services during all of this and being extra careful cool. about who. Yeah. Yep. So like, but it, it's definitely changed a lot of the culture around where people need to be in order to work. I mean, for example, with my office environment, um, one of the things that they basically recently said is that they're not even going to give us a even a remote state of returning to announce that until sometime maybe later in August. And that's a maybe. Um, we're going to be actually doing a survey tomorrow um, that we all have to fill out about our local areas, about our concerns and worries about coming back to work and um, working from home and things like that. And I don't think my com- for a lot of the service that my company needs to do, I don't think we actually need to go into the office. Yes, just like your company, we have we have a mailroom because people have to mail us stuff, um, and that needs to get sorted and scanned and things like that. So there has to be people at the office. However, you could probably take my whole entire division and save on 
real estate fees and just have us all work from home. Um, anyway, uh, we're, we're getting completely off track. Was there anything else you wanted to we talk about? Completely it's completely off track. It's, it's, it's like 2.30 in the morning now and I really <laughs> want to go to bed. <laughs> all let's right, we, go ahead and let Kit go to bed then. Yep, I think I've covered the stuff that I want to cover. Um, actually, there is one more question I have for you, Kit. So you've got a book out. You're get, working on your PhD. You're gonna probably gonna have your PhD here within the next few years. What's next for you? Um, so I've actually got another book that I'm actually another two books that I'm working on. I've got a, a book that's uh, that's a, a proper academic kind of one that's coming out a little bit end of the year, and then I'm working on a book on the science that goes into motor racing and uh, NASCAR, Formula One, Formula E. Um, but particularly looking at some of the advanced science stories, um, because some of the stuff that uh, that, that we, we're doing at the moment, and some of the stuff that we've got from Formula One and Formula E, you would never believe. Um, there is you know, so much nerd shit in NASCAR. Damn. NASCAR is just full of stuff. Um, but NASCAR is really interesting because it's what's called a stock system. So all the cars are exactly the same. Um, and so the cheating if you like the technical kind of wizardry that goes on with that is absolutely fascinating but i've been talking to formula one teams who um have designed transports for neonatal babies you know preterm babies um to protect them because they're so good at protecting drivers going around at 200 miles an hour when transporting a baby they can use the same technology the aerodynamics that go on to uh, motor racing cars are used in refrigerators in supermarkets sounds kind of frivolous but by controlling the flow of air in a fridge you can reduce its energy output by about 30 to 40 percent which cuts masses amounts of emissions so there's all these green technologies that you would never have thought of that have come out of motor racing and so that's kind of what i'm looking at all right where can people find you um so my website is uh kitchapman.co.uk you can find me on twitter at chemistry kit um that's that's pretty much the main places all right well we're going to go through and wrap it up. Um, I, want I am to... sad I didn't tell the sex toy story, but that's okay. It's way too late for you there. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's all on Twitter. If you want to know the sex story, to- toy story, that's all on Twitter. Yep. So go to Twitter. And also, he put up a periodic table of Disney characters listing all the elements with Disney characters. It's an amazing read on Twitter. <laughs> so... Um, go check that out too. Gallium um, as Gaston, the giant French cock. Absolutely. And, uh, and Holmium, which is named after Stockholm, that's Beast because Stockholm Syndrome is what he gives Bell. <laughs> so <laughs> to wrap things up, my name is Bill. I want to thank my special guest co host, Renee, and our guest, Kit. And we all have an X chromosome. So. Um, since Noelle's not here to kick the bot out, I guess that's going to go to me. Um, Get Craig. out of here, Craig. We hate you. Oh, thank you. I didn't want to go through and do it myself. <laughs> uh, hating on Craig was a, a time-honored occasion. Uh, uh, this portal was playing a game that was interesting. Get out, Craig. We hate you. Let's go. They call me Speed Rider, but never no heat hider. But I'm digital. Fighting wars, no one's hit to. Matrix Division Network System Point 2.
see the skies The sun shines down on our faces Before descending into hell's traces We can't replace this EMP's ready to be unleashed Nebuchadnezzar, slipstreaming like a beast Oracles architecting a congregated feast String them up like a martyr and will no peace Son, 